we finished Genesis last, uh, you're clapping as if you're happy that's over, okay? Who did that? Just kidding. Oh, you're celebrating that we, com- that we completed something. Nice, okay. Gotcha. Um, all right, so we finished Genesis before spring break, but so the goal to, of tonight is to kind of recap a little bit, but then move, continue moving along in the story of Israel and, and head into the New Testament. So, but I, I first want to just talk about why we have this Bible. Have you ever, have you ever thought about, like, like, why do we have this thing? I know that there's, I know the, the, the story, there's the, the meta-narrative that we believe this happening, this creation, fall, redemption, restoration, that this, the story of Jesus is, is, is what's in here. But, like, why do we have a book that tells us these things? And, and what is it trying to tell us? Um, so, like, I, I, sometimes I, I, I approach this Bible, and I have to catch myself, because my, my natural tendency is to want to read into it things that I want to see, you know, to see things that I want to see, to, to kind of interpret things the way I want to interpret them. And then I have to remember, like, okay, so I didn't put this book together. Um, and, and, and what actually I believe about this book is that God himself um, put it together for a purpose. What is that purpose? And I believe it's to reveal himself to us. So, so it, it's kind of a, it, it's a, for me it was a paradigm shift to start approaching the Bible and saying, okay, like this is a book that God is choosing to reveal himself to us. This isn't, this God isn't somebody that I get to um, like disagree with or, or agree with. He, he, he's not, he doesn't seem to be a God as, as revealed in here that I can go, yeah, you know, I don't like that part of you and so, but I'm gonna, I like this part of you. It seems like the God that's revealed here is a God who has an intrinsic identity just like you and I do, that says, whether you, whether you believe in me or not, whether you understand me or not, whether you um, like everything about me or not, I am who I am. That God um, comes to us in this word and, he's, and He says, this is who I am. I'm revealing myself to you. Um, he wants us to, to know Him. There, that's a... That's a pretty profound thing. That the God that we believe, that we believe that this, this God who, who gave us this word, who put this thing together, yes, 40 different authors, yes, over a span of 1,500 years, um, but all telling a continuous, consistent story, all pointing to Jesus for a purpose. And we believe that purpose is that God is revealing Himself to us and His plan for um, humanity and his plan to redeem and to restore the world back to himself. And so it, it, it changes things. When I open the Bible, I have to go, okay, um, this is your book, God. This is your word. These are your, um, this is your revelation to us. And so what are you trying to show me? What do you want to teach me? And so when we started Genesis, we, we went, we were in Genesis 1, and we learned, we learned why the book of Genesis was was given to us that it's a, it's a covenantal history. It's not just pure history. It's not scientific history. That's not the purpose of it. It's, it's covenantal history. It's, it's written to a group of people, the Israelite people, 
um, to, to help them see and understand their covenant with God. And, and so we see that from the very beginning that God is, it comes onto the scene and we see Him as creator and sustainer of the, the world, that He brought, brings all these things into being. He creates them. He, he, he gives them purpose and function. And then He blesses the, the, the creatures that He creates to inhabit this, this world. And then He sits on His throne. And He rules and He reigns and everything is good and has purpose and, and function. And that's the God that we see. But we also know of lots of other like cre- uh, creation narratives. right? There's other narratives that have wild stories and all of those stories tell about the gods. They, they, they reveal something about the gods. Right? And so this, this creation narrative is no different. This reveals a lot about God. And other creation narratives reveal a lot about God. And so the question is, um, like, what does this narrative reveal about Him? Um, and what kinds of things can we learn as we walk through this story? So, Genesis 1-11 through 11 really become this um, setting up the foundation to understand God's, God's basically establishing this foundation of God being creator and sustainer and, and blessing creation to get us to Genesis 12, which is like the first major move of this, of this meta-narrative. Um, that, that God is going to redeem and, the, and restore the world and He's choosing a man and He's choosing a family who becomes a nation who becomes the people of Israel, through which Jesus comes. Have you, ever, have you ever wondered, like, why not start Matthew 1 after Genesis 3? Like, why, why wasn't the story like, okay, people sinned, and then, oh, Jesus shows up on the screen, on the scene, on the screen. Maybe, for watching a movie. So, why, why not, like, why, why have all this, this history? Like, what's the point of... God reaching down and, and talking to this guy Abraham and then starting this really slow process of Abraham waits 20 plus years to have a son and then, and then two sons come and then 12 sons come and then, well, I mean, why, why does it take so long? Why, why are the people of Israel, you know, wandering in the desert and eventually making to the promised land. Why not just skip to Matthew chapter 1 right away where Jesus comes? And I think because this is what I've come to, underst- to believe and understand, that the story of Israel teaches us and reveals so much about who God is. And we see it specifically. We wouldn't know it. We actually wouldn't know these things about God if we didn't get to see Him interact with His people. And so what I want to talk about, I just want to walk through these different... Um, these different kind of periods in the life of Israel and talk about what, how those, those certain periods reveal about God, what they reveal about um, the nature and the character of God. Because that's what we believe, that Israel, that God's chosen people was, cho- was chosen to reveal the true nature and character of God through their interactions with Him and through their conduct. And it wasn't dependent on Israel being the best kind of people. He didn't, he didn't, the Bible's made this clear, he didn't reach down and say, I'm going to pick the best group, that way they, you know, they have the best chance of making this work. No, none of it depended on the people of Israel. None of it depended on the character of Abraham. We, we saw that his character was flawed. We, 
None of it depended on that. It all it it just depended on God, whoever God chose, that's who he chose. He chose them because he chose them. That's what he says. So God was going to be revealed for who he was and who he is, no matter no matter how they responded. So, how does God reveal his his character and nature? If you want to take notes, there's four four major areas, four major periods of time that I want to talk about. The first one is is Genesis, which is basically you can you can put down Genesis, you can put Abraham through Joseph, you can put the patriarchal period. But essentially, in this, in this period, we see lots of things. Okay? God reveals lots of things about himself, but I just want to highlight a couple. First, first two um, is that God's, God blesses and is personally involved with Israel. So he, he blesses. So, so I, I went back through and looked at how many times, how many people God blesses? And God blesses Adam and Eve. God blesses Noah in Genesis 9. He blesses Abraham in Genesis 12. He blesses Isaac in Genesis 26. He blesses Jacob in Genesis 28. And so you see this God who is blessing His plan through these people. And along with that, He's personally involved. He's personally invested. He is interacting with them. He's showing up. He's, he's providing things for them. He's, he's um, preventing things from happening. Like Sarah's, you know, being, being Sarah, his wife, being um, a part of like uh, Pharaoh's harem. So he's, <coughs> he's protecting certain things from happening. He's, he is um, warning, but he's personally invested. He's, he's, he's personally involved. So this, this is a major period. So God blessing, God, God being involved, God um, being personally connected to the people that he's blessing, the people in the story. The next major um, era, which, which we'll spend a little more time on, is Moses and the law. And Moses and the law, so, so what happens is we, we end Genesis 50, they're in Egypt, right? And everything's great because, because Joseph left things well. Pharaoh remembers, you know, the, the relationship that, that, that the Israelites have with, with their people. But then you fast forward several decades and Joseph's gone and that Pharaoh's gone and nobody knows why this big group of people who, by the way, multiplying like rabbits, um, is taking over. And so we got to, you know, the, the Egyptians feel like they got to do something with these people. And so they start kind of enslaving them. They become kind of the second class citizens. And you fast forward three, four hundred years and... Um, and they're slaves, and, and, and it, life is miserable for them, and they're crying out to God. And so you know the story of Joseph. Um, he, is, he is one of them. He realizes he's, he's Israelite. He, he kills um, an Egyptian. He has to flee. He, he lives in the desert for 40 years. So when he's 80 years old, Moses, Moses God appears to Moses and says, I'm going to send you back to get your people to call them out, because I've heard their cries, and I'm coming down to rescue them through you. So, so Moses does. He goes, he gets them out, the ten plagues. They come out of Egypt um, miraculously, and they, um, they find themselves at the base of Mount Sinai, and God gives a law. God does, God does something that no other God had done. He let them know what he wanted from them. So, so you know, you, you probably heard stories of you know, people doing rain dances or um, people making sacrifices or certain things happening because they're trying to figure out what do the gods want? Like, how do we, how do we please the gods? 
Well, let's dance. Oh, it rained. Let's keep doing that. Maybe if we dance, it'll rain. <laughs> what, so, how does this work? How do we please the gods? That's, that, was a, that was a constant thing. And they'd figure out certain things that work and figure out other things that didn't work. But, but God says, listen, I'm going to establish a covenant with you. I already have, actually, established a covenant with you. I've been personally involved in your story. But now I'm going to take it further and I'm going to, I'm going to come up with um, a set of rules. I'm going to give you some laws to live by. So how many of you have heard the, this phrase? You may repeat, or finish it for me if you've heard it. Christianity is not about rules. It's about a what? Relationship. Relationship. Um, so tell me a relationship that doesn't have any rules. Do you know any, relation, any relationships with two parties where there are no rules? Yeah, that well, that that doesn't it, it doesn't exist. It, it's a maybe a one-sided relationship, but not a two-sided relationship. You so like if we if if I had a relationship with you and we had no rules, one day I could completely ignore you. The next day I could smack you every time you talked, right? Because there's no rules. I can do whatever I want. That's not a relationship. We, we this wouldn't last long at all, right? So this idea that. Um, that Christianity is about a relationship and not about rules is really a really bad idea. It's one of the dumb things that Christians believe, honestly. There's a list, okay, and that's, that's definitely one of them. Um, every relationship has, has boundaries, has rules. And God says, God, in fact, actually, it would, it would be very unloving to have a relationship with somebody and not express, this is, this is what I need from you. This is what... Um, I don't like, or this is what I like, you know, I don't like it when you do this, and I like it when you do, it would be rude, it would be really, really unloving to try to have a relationship with somebody when they never told you anything, you just had to guess all the time, you had to read their minds all the time, and so what God says is, I'm going to be very clear about my relationship with you, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you these laws, and I'm going to help you understand, like, this is how you stay in relationship with me, this is what you do to stay set apart. And so in, in, in this period, um, what, what God reveals about Himself is His holiness and His character in the story of, of Moses and the law. So God, God reveals His holiness and His character. God is a holy God. Um, and, he, and He lets His people know what He wants. Um, so my kids, my kids know what's important to me. So when, when I get on to them about something or when I try to teach them something or when I remind them of something like over and over and over, that every time I tell them something, I'm revealing something about me. I'm revealing like what's important to me. So if you ask my kids, um, what I'm, so in the last five years, okay, this has been increasingly true. In the last five years, if you ask them, what am I most concerned about them eating? They will say sugar. Okay? That's just, we watched a documentary five years ago and it messed me up. Okay? So, um, so don't watch. Sorry. Uh, it, actually, it's called Fed Up and I'm fed up. No. Uh, but, so yeah. So my wife, I talked to my wife about this. We, we watched it together. We started like making some better decisions about the things we buy or let our kids eat. And so, you know, I, I don't go crazy because I ate a lot of sugar growing up. And so I tell, you know, I, I make comments. I, I figure out ways to like, okay, you, 
How much? What have you had today? How much have you eaten today? I don't think, no, you're not having a bowl of cereal right before dinner. You, you have one right after lunch. We're not having one before, before bed. You know, too much sugar. It, another question, if, if you ask my kids, what's my least favorite thing about Disney? You guys actually might even know. What's my least favorite thing about, about Disney? The phrase, there's a phrase. What is it? In, in almost every Disney movie. Thank you. Yes, you know. Say so every time they're watching a Disney movie, and that idea is being um, preached. Okay, it truly is being preached. I say that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Or I make fun of it. Or I say something. Or yeah, yeah, I'm gonna follow my heart, and I'm just gonna, whatever. I say something stupid. So, so they know. Like they know that that. I think that's a dumb idea. And, and what does that do? That, that reveals like something about me like, and what I care about and what's important to me. And what... So every time. So, so God does the same thing. God gives the people um, this, his, these, these laws. 613 to be exact. 613 laws He gives them. And, and God sets the standard high because to be in relationship with God the standard is very high. And, and, and that sounds like, oh, that's unfair. But, but in actuality, what God is, is doing is He's revealing that He is a holy God. That there's none like Him. In fact, Tozer um, says it best. He says, uh, A.W. Tozer says, He is the absolute quintessence of moral excellence, infinitely perfect and righteous, purity in righteousness, purity, rectitude, and incomprehensible holiness. I feel like if Anthony were here, he would say amen. Um, and in all this, he is uncreated, self-sufficient, and beyond the power of human thought to conceive or human speech to utter. So, God sets this standard high for his people because he wants them to know who he is. And he reveals himself, and he, every, time, every time he acts... He defines things, like He defines faithfulness by His actions, and justice, and purity, and consistency, and truthfulness, and graciousness, and forgiveness. And, and by His actions, people of Israel, they see that He is wise, and He is good, and He is merciful, and He is loving, and He is sovereign. And so He sets these rules up, and these, these laws up, and He even has grace that goes with it, because He knows they can't, they can't keep His standard. And so He, is, he establishes a system that says, okay, when you mess up, because you will, because you're not me, but, you, but in order to be in a relationship with me, this is the standard. And so God establishes a gracious forgiveness atonement process, which lays a foundation for someone later. So that's, that's the next one. Um, the third one is David and the Kings. In, the, in this period, so, so we fast forward. Moses and the people of Israel, they're in the wilderness and they, they, they complain, they, they doubt him. And, and so God makes them wander for 40 years um, to kill off the generation that complained, to kill off the generation that didn't believe. So that generation goes and so their, their people wander. Finally, they get into the land that, that he promised them. And the people look around and they see all the other nations and they say that they all have a human king. We're, we're kind of tired of following this God who's telling us what to do. We want, we want a king. We want a human to lead us. Everybody else has a human. We want someone that we can look to that, that's going to provide for us, that's going to protect us. 
And so they asked for a king. So turn to 1 Samuel 8, because I want you to read this. 1 Samuel 8 is, is really where this idea of, where we first see this idea of God being their king. Somebody read 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 7. Of course. Anytime, really. Just, just whenever. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Okay. So they want a king. And, and, and Samuel's like, God, this is wrong. Samuel was a one on the Enneagram, I'm convinced. He's like, no, this is not right that they want a king. And, and God says, um, it's okay. Give them what they want because it's not you they've rejected. It's me. I'm, the, I'm their king, and they don't, they don't, they've rejected me. They want a human. So God goes on and he explains, like, and by the way, let them know this is what human kings do. They, 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 be, they get corrupted with power, and they'll eventually take their stuff. Um, and that's, and that's kind of what happened. And so the first king the people of Israel choose is this guy Saul, and he's tall and he's handsome, and he, he, looks, he looks like he's the perfect candidate, and he doesn't follow God and doesn't obey um, the Lord's prophet Samuel. And, and so... He, he eventually is rejected, and then God chooses a king. And the king that God chooses is David. And we see David is a man after God's own heart. And so we see that David is, he was a tender-hearted, um, he was a warrior. And he had, he, had, he, had, he had authority and power to carry out what he believed. He also had an ability to worship, an ability to connect with God. And so we see this, this picture that God is kind of highlighting of this, this tender-hearted, this merciful and compassionate warrior king. So God is king. And so we, we see this, that God is, is establishing His kingdom ultimately, and I believe, um, to redeem and to restore the world back to Himself. Like, wherever He goes, wherever His kingdom goes, justice pervades and, and righteousness and, and he's, he's redeeming and restoring back from brokenness by sin and destruction by selfishness and corruption by power. And he wants um, grace and truth and justice and righteousness to reign. And so God's greatest concern in His kingdom is not one individual having a great life or um, their best life now or, or some sort of Incredible experience, health and, and, and happiness and wealth. That's not, that's, not his, that's not his primary objective as king over a kingdom. It's ultimately his, his objective, which is different than any other kingdom that's existed, is ultimately, um, actually not, not, not true, um, his kingdom through David, his kingdom through Israel, when, when they're following him, when they're right with him, 
did this. And in the kingdom that God's establishing now, I believe, when following God does this, which is ultimately um, the whole kingdom was to bring Him glory, was to point back to Him, was to restore brokenness and, and, and re- reconcile people to God. And so, so God comes and he, and he establishes David as king and He models something to us. And He makes a promise to David that, that da- someone, one of David's descendants will always be on the throne because of the kind of man that David was. And David wasn't perfect. He had flaws. He, I mean, that whole David and Bathsheba story, that whole um, killing Bathsheba's husband and, and, and all the craziness that happened in his family to follow that. So we see David's not perfect in this. Um, but we see glimpses of the kind of kingdom that God is wanting to establish. And so we see that God is, is compassionate and merciful and that, he ha- and that He has authority and power to carry out justice and righteousness in the land. And the reason we need that is because, because we all know of injustice and brokenness that exists. Like we got to hear stories in Albuquerque this past week um, that make your skin crawl, that make you sick to your stomach to find out about. We learned that when, when a, 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 a child or a, a girl, most likely a girl, but really just anybody, 13, 14 through 21, 22, when they, when they get on the streets in Albuquerque, within, within 48 hours, 24 to 48 hours, they will be approached, on average, they will be approached by a trafficker. Um, and to, and to be taken into to sex trade and slavery, basically. Like, it's crazy. She told us a story of, of a young girl who, who her mom was really mad at her and said, fine, you want to be that way? You can take care of yourself. Kicked her out. And in less than 24 hours, a guy had invited her to go to a party. As soon as she got in the car, all the door handles were off. He pulled out a gun and said, you're going to do everything I told you to do, tell you to do from here on out. Like that. So the reason that we need to know that God has the power and the authority to carry out justice and righteousness is because of crap like that that exists. And that He's sending people, His agents, and and so I'm getting ahead of myself. But David and the kings teach us about God's God's authority and his, his compassion and his kingship. And so, so there's all these kings. So David was a great king. And then his son Solomon was pretty good for a while. And then he literally got in bed with all the nations, literally. And, and so um, it goes downhill quick. His son separates the two kingdoms into two, into two northern and southern and, and then it is one bad king after one terrible king after one really, really, really terrible king um, for, for a while. Okay? And so then you enter into this period called the prophets. And I used to think that prophets were like angry preachers that just had, like, why, why are they so angry? Why do they just walk around yelling at everybody? That would be miserable. I wouldn't want to do that. Until I realized that... Basically what was happening was the people of Israel had abandoned their covenant with God and were chasing after idols and these other nations. And God saw them heading for a cliff of destruction. And God said, I'm not going to let that happen. In fact, I'm going to raise up these men. I'm going to give them a message to go out and to tell the people to remind them of their covenant 
and to, and to call them to repent, to change their mind and to turn back to God before they, hit into, before they walk off this cliff, which was the Assyrian army or the Babylonian army or nation. So God says, oh, he raises up these prophets and he sends them out. And so during this, this period of the prophets, we see God being revealed, uh, God's judgment and salvation being revealed. And we find out that judgment, which sounds like a really bad word, is actually a really good word. When God pronounces judgment, He's making a statement. But judgment was always given so that repentance could happen. Judgment was a warning. Like, this is what's happening. I'm making, God, God is the only one that can make a call and say, this is, this is the way things are. This is where you're heading. And, and by the way, you can turn from that. You can turn back to me. And so over and over and over, we see God um, pronouncing judgment on the people, people of Israel, Israel, rightly so, because of their hundreds of years of chasing idols and wickedness and destruction that was happening. And so God in His grace, actually, like you've got to see, the, the, for God to send prophets, it shows that He's not giving up on His people. And he's calling them back to him. So over and over and over throughout the prophets, the, the major and the minor, um, you, see, you see God's grace in this. And you, and you learn that like the beauty of judgment is, is leading to repentance and ultimately leading to reconciliation and, and salvation. And so we learn that if and when we repent, that salvation is to follow through, through, the, through the prophets. Um, that we learn that the purpose of judgment is to produce repentance that leads to restoration. So all throughout, all throughout the story of Israel, right from Genesis through, through the prophets, God reveals Himself through His people. And in obedience or disobedience, God was proven right and true and faithful and, and merciful. In fact, there's a great summary of, of the, the relationship that God had with Israel in Isaiah 49, verse 3. So, so go ahead and turn there, because I want you to see this. Um, and then we're going to spend a little time in Isaiah 43, 49. But Isaiah 49, verse 3. And this, so this is God speaking, and He says, And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So think about that. Um, This isn't the first kind of time he said, first time he said this kind of thing. Like over and over, God says, Like, I I chose you because I chose you. I chose you because I want to reveal myself through you, to be glorified through you. Like what what's happening is, is you are revealing me. You are you are, your story is bringing glory to me in disobedience or in obedience. Like this is a common idea for God. So the question that I want to leave you with is, how, how does this lead into the New Testament? And, and like, how does this story continue and, and how does this lead into Jesus coming? And that's what Drew's going to get up and talk about in just a moment. So take a break and we will come back. Dear God, you know uh, 
you know, the way my own uh, mind is even spinning right now and trying to get back in the swing of things. Uh, you know, the way other people's minds are spinning and the things going through and, and the distractions. Um, and, and you are sovereign over all of that. And you're in control. And so I pray, Lord, for you to be in control in this moment. I pray for you to speak clearly through your word. I pray for hearts to be open and broken by your word and uh, for us to get a clearer picture of Jesus tonight. Um, I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So Scott mentioned it at the very end that there's this verse that seems to be a really great summary verse uh, for what Israel's role is. As we talked about, Israel reveals the uh, nature and character of God by the way God relates with them and speaks to them and through them. But there's this verse in Isaiah 49 that just seems to be such a good summary of that where it says, um, And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And he said to me, so the speaker, he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. That's a great idea of what, what Israel's there for is to, is to glorify God. They are to be the entity through which God is glorified. But then if you go just a few verses later, it gets weird. Uh, read verse 5. And now the Lord says, he who formed me, so same person is speaking. The same person who just said God called me Israel is speaking. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, and then he goes into this quote. But, but I don't know if you caught it here. Here's what's weird. He says, And now the Lord who formed me, who's me? Verse 3, it just said, Me is Israel. And then what did it say me is supposed to do? He formed me, Israel, to bring back Israel. He formed me to bring back Jacob. Formed me to bring back Israel. And, and that's where that gets weird. And, and this is something that a lot of people have kind of wrestled with. So the speaker is called Israel, and yet the speaker is also called by God to bring Israel back to him. So how can Israel bring back Israel? This issue comes up several times in Isaiah. They're called the servant songs. They take place in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 49, 1 through 6, we just read. Isaiah 50, 4 through 7. And then there's a long section, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. These are the four servant songs in Isaiah. And people, scholars, interpreters, whenever they read those, wrestle with it because it's difficult to figure out exactly sometimes what he's doing here with this servant. Oftentimes he seems to be referring to Israel, and that's how Jewish scholars interpret it today, by the way. If, if, uh, uh, if you didn't get a chance to listen to, hear when Uri was here talking with us um, a few weeks ago, and then he also recorded a podcast with Jim going over Isaiah 53, one of these servant songs. And Uri and, and every other Jewish interpreter says, the servant that God is talking to, the person that Isaiah is talking to, is Israel in here. That's how it's interpreted. And yet you see these things that make these little details that pop up that make that interpretation really complicated. For example, like we just read, how is it if this servant is Israel, then why is he called to bring back Israel? That doesn't seem to work. 
By the way, there's, this is at least one of two sections in Scripture where the term Israel is complicated and we don't know what to do with it. Uh, I'll tell you the other one later, but, but first let's just dwell with the servant songs. There are these details that come up that make it hard to say for sure, yeah, this is the nation of Israel. Like the very first servant song is Isaiah 42. Go there real quick. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, says this. Behold my servant, so servant song, okay? My servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So this is the very first servant song. And like I said, the traditional interpretation is that servant that it's talking about is Israel, but that is complicated. Here's um, what one scholar, a guy by the name of Barry Webb, says um, in his Isaiah commentary. He says about this psalm, the servant here is far too ideal a figure to represent Israel in any direct sense. This is what Isaiah says about the servant, that he fills God with delight that he is quiet and gentle, that he is faithful and persevering. He does not falter or become discouraged. Israel, by contrast, in other parts of Isaiah, is resentful and complaining, fearful and dismayed, blind, deaf and disobedient. In short, the servant in this passage seems to be somebody else. Seems like it can't quite... And so, how do we make sense of this phrase, Israel, that doesn't seem to be Israel? Webb goes on and says, in short, actually, this figure, uh, or this passage, the person in this passage seems to be a figure who embodies all that Israel ought to be, but is not. Someone who, who, who represents everything that Israel was supposed to be, but was not. Israel was supposed to be obedient and faithful, and holy, and a kingdom of priests, and a light to the Gentiles that displayed God's glory. In short, you were supposed to be able to like look at Israel and go, oh, that's what God looks like. like that's, that's what their design was for, that you could see them and get a picture of their God, of the one true God, Yahweh. And, and this happened only in like short spurts. They would kind of get it right and be able to see it, but it never fully took place within that nation never really worked out the way that, that they were called to. And, and as Scott mentioned, God's character was still displayed through, even through Israel's failure. That God's holiness and His judgment, His redemption is still there displayed. But Isaiah says that there's someone who's going to do all of those things. That someone will do that in the fullest sense. And then, of course, you come to the New Testament. You come to the Gospels, and a couple weeks ago, we spent a little bit of time in Matthew 1, the very first chapter of the New Testament, which opens up with the genealogy of Jesus. And we talked about how Matthew goes to great lengths to show how Jesus is the promised son of David, the promised king who will sit on David's throne from his line. But Matthew's actually not finished with some of the connections that he's building in chapter 1. In fact, if you go into the next two chapters, Matthew 
chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 3, Matthew is going to say these things about Jesus and see if this sounds familiar at all to you. That Jesus will exit out of Egypt, that he will pass through the waters of baptism, that he will be tested in the wilderness for 40 years, and that he will then go to a mountain to deliver a mandate for his new people that was just formed. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you at all, but, but what you have being reenacted is the people of Israel exiting out of Egypt, passing through the waters of the Red Sea, spending 40 years being tested in the wilderness, and then going to Mount Sinai where a mandate is given to this new people, this new nation. And Matthew describes Jesus as doing all those very things. When you pay attention to the Gospels, you'll see this over and over again where Jesus reenacts key events from Israel's history or, or he fills in the spot of a key figure or a key leader from Israel's history like Moses or he'll take over one of the rituals of Israel's history like temple worship and sacrifice and he'll show himself to be a fuller, bigger, clearer, more perfect picture of those things. What those things were really intended to be. And sometimes the writers will call like really direct, explicit attention to it. Matthew loves to do it. Matthew, almost everything Jesus does, Matthew likes to come in behind it and say, this he did to fulfill the words of the prophet. He likes to go back and say, yeah, Jesus did this on purpose to fulfill something from Israel's past, to fulfill something that a prophet said or something that Israel had done earlier. Sometimes Jesus will call attention to it. Like when he stands up on the Sermon on the Mount and he says, Now listen, I did not come to abolish the law, but I did come to fulfill it. I came to bring it to its fullest, most logical end. I came to be the culmination of all of that. And then there are some times where he'll even make, uh, do it kind of more subtly when he'll call his body the new temple, i.e. the new place where God meets man. It's right here. Jesus says, and, and it kind of flies over the heads of most of his listeners in that moment. Later on, they catch wind of it and see it, but sometimes it's actually really subtle, like that, like that Jesus going out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested. And unless, you're, unless your mind's really thinking, unless you know your Old Testament, you're not going to right off the bat make that connection. 40 days tested in the wilderness. That sounds just like 40 years tested in the wilderness. Or this really famous uh, passage that a lot of people have no idea is there on purpose. When Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Actually, he, he doesn't just say, I am the vine. Does anybody know what he says? I am the true vine. And he says that because passages like Hosea 10.1, um, passages in Isaiah, passages in Jeremiah, and in Ezekiel refer to Israel as God's vine, and sometimes as his vineyard that God created, that God grew, that God tended, that was supposed to bear fruit and did not bear fruit. And so judgment came upon it. And then Jesus comes and says, I am the true vine. And, and those who are a part of God are those who remain in me. That's how you bear fruit. And, and if you're not paying attention, if you don't know your Old Testament, it's easy to miss that. But this, I, this thing comes up over and over again, whether it's subtle or explicit. The idea is the same, that Jesus is filling something out here, that he's making something more clear, that he's making something more real. Paul actually explains this idea fairly well in one of his letters. He's writing to the church in Colossae, and there's this group of people there in, in Colossae who are 
new Christians, and they've chosen to be followers of Jesus. But then this other people group comes in, they're, they're kind of around the church, and some of them seem to be in the church, and they start telling the Colossians, hey, that's all real and good that you're following Jesus, but if you want to be like really spiritual, if you want to be really religious, if you want to be like really in touch with God, then you do like the Jesus thing, but then you also need to follow all of these um Old Testament rituals like following the keeping the Sabbath and circumcision and dietary restriction and new moon festivals, all these things that I mean, God mandated that in the Old Testament. So, if you really want to be a follower of Him, then you need to be doing those things as well. And and Paul writes uh, in the in the book of Colossians and basically says that's not even close to true. You could not be further from the truth about those things. This is what he says in Colossians 2, verses 16 through 17. Listen to how he describes the things of the Old Testament. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Here's what he says. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. All those things you read about in the Old Testament, all those things that God had His people doing, they weren't a waste of time. They were important. They were pointing to something. They were shadows. They were foreshadowings of something real that was coming. But the the realness, the, the substance, the true reality is found in Christ, Paul says. That's what it was all pointing there. And so if you try to uh, grab a hold of those things, like that's what's going to make you right with God, like that's what's going to make you good, it's like trying to grab a hold of a shadow. You're missing the real thing. Those were just pointers to something. And so we see this, that Jesus comes and does everything Israel was supposed to do to a greater level. Scott walked you through these different eras in Israel's history and the different parts of God's nature that were revealed in those things. Um, Everything that is somewhat revealed about God through Israel is made clearest through Jesus when we look at him. So in Genesis and in Abraham and the patriarchs, we see the personal involvement of God, that, that God involves himself in, uh, himself in this world, in the lives of his people. Now we see that in part through Genesis and through the Old Testament, but we see that on a whole other level when the Gospels come and when Jesus arrives. John says in John 1.14, and the word, that is, the word who was with God and was God, Jesus himself, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus, we don't just see that God is a God who's involved, we see God actually come and live amongst us. We see him put on flesh and come and take up residency in us. In Moses' day, and and through the law given at Mount Sinai, Scott told you that God's holiness and his character was displayed. And it's true that as he handed those things, it was a way to be able to see what he was like, to see that he was set apart from everything else and Israel was supposed to be even more set apart. But the way we get to see that to the fullest degree is when God himself puts on flesh and comes and walks and lives out that holiness in everyday life. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 4.15, that Jesus is in every res- or was in, has in every respect been tempted as we are, and yet He is without sin. 
that he came and lived the same kind of life you and I did, and yet he was completely without sin. There was never a lustful thought that went through his mind. There was never a millisecond of a bad attitude that went uh, through his body. There was never any sort of self-focused pity coming from him. There was never any sort of unrighteous anger poured out towards anybody. There was never any sort of bitterness in him. There was no ounce of sin in him. And the holiness of God is put on display clearly as it walked amongst people in Jesus. And yet, here's kind of the cool thing. The writer of Hebrews says that ought not to make you shy away from him. He doesn't say, Jesus is like this and therefore you can never have anything to do with him. He's so far above you. He's so different from you. Actually, the very next verse, the writer says, and since we have a great great high priest like that, who knows every kind of temptation you've been through, who's experienced it, who knows what it is to live in the fragility of a human body, and yet he still came through that on top. He said, let us approach him with confidence, knowing that in Jesus you're going to find grace, you're going to find mercy in your moment of greatest need. In David and in the rest of the kings, God's royalty, his kingship, is revealed in part. But in Jesus, we see something to a greater degree than we've ever seen before. He comes and he brings a new kingdom uh, here on the earth through his teaching, through his ministry. But beyond that, by his death and resurrection, he is glorified and brought to a, uh, a new height. So much so that John says in the book of Revelation that when all the nations of the world, the most powerful nations of the world, even the great Roman Empire, which sits at the backdrop of, of Revelation all the time, when, when Rome itself would come to try to do battle with Jesus, it's not even going to be a contest. It says in Revelation 17, 14 that, he, um, that these will wage war against the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and He is King of kings and those who are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. That Jesus is not just King like David, He is King of all kings. In the prophets we see that God is a God of judgment, but He is also a God of loving and redeeming salvation. That He calls His people back, He redeems them back in sin, but there is no place on earth, no place in history that you will find a more clear expression of the judgment and the love of God at the exact same time than on this little hill outside of Jerusalem, called Golgotha, where Jesus himself is crucified to take on both the judgment of God and give us the love of God in that process. Ephesians 2 verses 5 through 7 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him, and and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, In Christ Jesus. That's where we see those things. And those last three words right there are key. They're some of Paul's favorites. In Christ Jesus. Sometimes he just boils those down to two words. In Christ Jesus. He loves those things and he comes back to those over and over again. And it's those three words that actually lead us into that second complicated text I told you about earlier. told you there's two places where we don't exactly know what Israel means 100%. The other one comes in the New Testament. It comes at the very end of the book of Galatians. Paul has been 
teaching the Galatians about some of the same stuff as he's been talking to the Colossians about, that you don't practice all the Jewish rituals to try and be a part of this, that you don't have to do that to belong to Jesus. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to be Jewish to be a part of this. And then when he closes his letter, he says this in Galatians 6, verses 15 through 16. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's what counts, he says. That's what matters, is whether someone is made into a new creation. And then he says, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And people don't know what to do with that last phrase. People don't know exactly how to work that one out. He, he might be talking about literal, physical, ethnic Israel. But it just seems a little bit out of place. It seems kind of random here in this letter to all of a sudden just end with some kind of peace towards the Israel of God. Because this is written to Galatia. This is written to modern day Turkey, Asia Minor, not to anybody in Israel. So that would be weird. He's not talking about Jesus like in Isaiah. Because he says grace and mercy upon them. He doesn't have to wish grace and mercy upon Jesus. Jesus doesn't need mercy and he's got plenty of grace. So then who is he talking about? Who is he working through when he says these words? So who is this? Well, look at uh, his use of that phrase, in Christ Jesus, earlier in the book. And I think it explains it. So if you walk back just a few chapters later in Galatians, he'll use this phrase, in Christ Jesus. And I think it's key for understanding God's perspective, or Paul's perspective on who Israel is. I think, at least. Galatians 3, 27 through 29. So remember, he's talking to people who have been Gentiles all their lives. He says, for, here's the phrase, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one. Here's the phrase again. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is spoken to Gentiles. This is spoken to pagans. This is spoken to people who never offered a sacrifice in the temple of Jerusalem in their entire lives. This is referring to people who maybe never even read the Old Testament before. And he says, you, if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. You are the promised heirs that come through the line of Isaac. And the reason why I think Paul is able to say this is because he knows that the true, deep, and real Israel is Jesus Christ. He's the Israel that Israel is supposed to be. And when you are in Christ, you are in the people of God. You are connected to the true vine. You are now the people of God. I think when he says, peace upon the Israel of God, he means you and I. He means the church. He means those people who now belong and get to be what Israel was. The very ones who belong to God. God's treasured possession. Now, so what? I mean, cool story, Drew, but, but what am I supposed to do with that? What's, like the, what, what's, what's the application? What do we go and do? Well, we'll get to that. 
In the next couple of weeks, we're going to spend some time talking about what does it actually mean to be the new people of God, to be the Israel of God, what are the implications of that for our lives. But here's the so what for tonight. The only so what for tonight is that you step back and you worship the one who made this possible. That you take a moment to be grateful for the fact that you get to be in on this and through no merit of your own. Um, you be grateful for the people of Israel who, who were faithful to God all through that time, those who did actually seek to follow, that God used to bring His purposes into action. And then you be grateful, most of all, for Jesus that He came and that you get to be a part of this, that you get to be in on this. And so that's what we're going to do, is we're going to spend a few minutes being grateful and worshiping God that we get to be in on this. Um, what I want to do is have the band come up. Um, and as they're getting ready, I want to read to you another section out of Ephesians 2. And it's this section where Paul describes what it's like for Gentiles to now become, always remember this, Gentiles, I mean you. What it's like for Americans to now get to be a part of the people of God, to now get to be a part of Abraham's family. And so I'm going to give us just a moment. I'm going to give you a moment to kind of reflect to pause on this, to think on the reality that Jesus is, that all the Old Testament was pointing to, to think about the beauty of you getting to be a part of that. And then I want to read this passage, and then we will join in a time of worship together. So take a moment in reflection before we do that.